Um, so I did a little experiment in Sunday school a few weeks ago, and I asked the kids how many times they've heard the Christmas story. So I thought it could be quite fun to do it here. How many times do you think in your lifetime you've heard the Christmas story? Who would say 10? 20? 30? 40? 50? Do we have a 60? 70? 80? 90? Do we have a 100? Anyone? 100. We've got 100 upstairs. <laughs> Maybe 200. Now, when I did it with these kids, it was quite, quite amusing because there were these jaded 10-year-olds like, yeah, I've heard it 70 times. Um, but something that I actually have a burden for is that, and it's probably because I grew up as a church kid, is that it's one of the best gifts that we can have growing up and just hearing these stories of faith. It is also something that we have to fight against, having a religious spirit when it comes to these um, great times in our Christian calendar. And where we've earmarked the 25th to remember Jesus' birth and to commemorate it, there's a lot of religiosity around the celebration. And so often we can just shut off to what God really wants to do. And if we have to be honest, it's not just kids who are often more excited about what is under the tree, because that's something new and fresh, and you don't know what's behind the wrapping. Um, but maybe that's an indication that you need to push in and ask God for more, um, more of His Spirit, more um, wisdom, just more revelation of who He is, because um, the Bible reminds us His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies are new every day. There's always something fresh and beautiful in God's kingdom. So I'm just going to pray that we have open hearts and open minds to what God wants to say to us. So Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes and just opens up the truth to us. Lord, may you teach us something new about yourself. May you reveal something new. Um, may you challenge us, Lord, and we just pray against any religious spirit that might be entertaining our minds and making it shut down, Lord. And we just pray for open hearts and open minds to hear what you want to say. Amen. Now, I don't know if ever, it's, um, there's, a, there's an intersection near Weinberg Hill, and if you've driven it, um, you might find I'm a bit of a deer in the headlights because it's got one of those mirrors where you have to trust that the mirror is revealing to you what's coming. Have you seen the, that mirror? And it's on the busy road. I don't know what the road is. Maybe a Weinberg Boy. It's near Weinberg Boys High, so you'll know it. But if you're anything like me, I get a bit panicked because I find it hard to just trust what is being reflected is either that there's no cars coming or that there are cars coming. And um, when we look at, at the promises in Isaiah, promises of what Christ would be like, um, it is a trust that, that Jesus, that God was revealing who Jesus was going to be. We could look in this mirror, and although we weren't there, um, we could trust that what he was saying in Isaiah was going to be fulfilled. And so it's so beautiful that now we actually have the benefit of seeing because it now has passed, and we can see that God's promises are true. And it's such a beautiful affirmation that his word is true, that his promises are true. And um, there's a beautiful... Um, Isaiah 40, 42 speaks about it, just beautiful promises of the Messiah. And the way I see it is almost just saying what he's going to come as, what he's going to be like, what his approach is going to be, how we can see him coming, what we could look out for. And it's such a beautiful one. And we're just going to look at four very simple verses that paint a beautiful picture but can still challenge us today. And it starts like this. It says, here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teachings, the islands will put their hope. And we're just going to look very simply at at just some of these verses and, and what they mean. And the first thing is just the simple statement, here is my servant. And if you think about it, it's just a beautiful introduction of here he is. Look at Jesus. He is God's servant. And that beautiful introduction, when, if you, you know, when you first married or just got engaged and you go, well, here is my fiancé, that's quite a cool thing to do. And I remember actually when I got engaged and I was so self-conscious, I didn't want to raise this hand during worship because I was so self-conscious about wearing the wedding ring. But there's a real pride about it. Here is my fiancé. Here is my husband. Here is my child. Here is my family member. Here is my servant. And that is his great introduction into the world. And not just that, is that he is a servant, and, and I think this is something that we sometimes also water down. It wasn't that Jesus just came with servanthood. He did come with servanthood. He was a servant. He wasn't afraid to wash t- feet. He, he came to serve, but he was the Father's servant. There was something deeper to it, too. He was sent by the Father to do the Father's business. He was there because the Father had sent him. He was there to faithfully uphold everything the Father had asked him to do. And so then in following that, he became a servant to others, and he came to serve. But he came as God's faithful servant. And so he gets introduced to the world as God's servant, the one who God has entrusted with a very special job. And then it isn't just, here is my servant. It's, here is my servant who I uphold. And this imagery was actually drawn from, from the eastern, if you looked at the courts, the eastern courts, the monarch, monarch would, he would be walking and he would actually have, he would be in the procession and he would actually have one of his prized servants, the ones that he trusted the most, right next to him, um, just to lean upon them. And so this verse could have read, behold, he has my servant upon whom I lean. And what he's basically saying is, I'm counting on him to do my work. I'm leaning on him. He's mine, and he's going to be doing my work. He's my, he's my well, right-hand man wouldn't even be appropriate, but here he is, um, and, and he, he's just right here beside me. And so there's already an intimacy that is being drawn in this picture of God coming, Jesus coming down, but this intimacy with God. And he's been entrusted with a beautiful ministry. And then he says, my chosen one in whom I delight. And what a beautiful statement. The one I have handpicked, my chosen one, to be chosen by someone to be their person is a very precious and special thing. So Jesus is God's chosen one in whom he delights. That enjoyment, if you delight in something, if you really enjoy it, there's such a beauty to delighting in something. And if you think about the image where I see it and and the one when I read this verse that that comes to mind and probably brings out the most beautiful picture is when Jesus is baptized. And if if you've ever studied that scripture, you'll see that the, the whole trinity is present at that point because Jesus goes under the water, the Holy Spirit descends and a voice from heaven comes and says this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
And straight away, it got me thinking of just, if, if you as a child have ever heard your parents say, like, I love you, I'm pleased with you, and just the beauty of it. And then also just the beauty of saying to your own child, I love you, this is who I love, and making that declaration. And I was thinking the other day, because our son Alexander, he, he's quite a shy guy. And so for him, you know, there were a few days when I came to school when I first started because he comes to the, the preschool here. I thought I was going to be cool because I worked at the church and he was here and, you know, it didn't work that way. And so anyway, and so I realized I couldn't go onto the playground and be like, Alexander, come to mom. And um, it, it didn't go down well. Um, and in fact, I'm dead to him when he's here. However, when we get home, there's a different relationship. And so what I do is that I really want to affirm him and I want him to feel loved. And there's two reasons I want him. I want him to know just how much I love him. I don't want him to get a big head. I don't want him to be vain. I don't want him to be anything. But I want him to be so sure of my love. And then the other thing is I want him to know um, that what God thinks about him and just what God says about him and how lavish God's love is on him. And so what I've done is I've developed a, my own little praise singing. When we get home, I take him out the car and sometimes he's tired and I've got to carry him or I've put him on my shoulders or he just walks back to me and I just shout out and there's no one in the neighborhood. I usually make sure that there is no one there. Um, but I shout out, this is my son, everyone. He's my boy. This is my boy, Alexander, and I'm taking him home and I love him and I'm so happy that out of all the kids in Noah's Ark, I get to take my boy home, and I just see this little smile, this little, okay. <laughs> I, I know he loves it because the, the lips are starting to turn up, but he's too, like, three-year-old cool to show it. Um, but there's such a beauty in just hearing someone just love you so lavishly, just being so proud of you. And I'll shout out something special that he did that day that his teacher told him. And it's kind of become a little bit of a hometown ritual now where I just kind of just praise him. And it's such a beautiful thing to be able to praise someone, to speak about your love for them and not hold back, and just to share it in such a beautiful way. It's so beautiful to be praised. And so you see something really special about God's love relationship with his son. But when I think about how it must have been for God to look down on his son with pride, it must have been a beautiful thing. If you think about just how dark the world was, because people's hearts are sinful, and all of a sudden Jesus comes down, he comes down in purity, he comes down in perfection, he comes down as a light to the world, and God must look down on that and just go, what a beautiful thing, this is my son whom I love. If you look at um, John 1, it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so as Jesus walks around sinful people, he just brings us light in. And that must have been something that really delighted God, who's a holy God, a God of perfection. Because you see in Genesis 6, when he looks down at the world, this is before um, the flood, when he looks down, in the time of Noah, and he says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on, on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. It must have pained God to look down on all of that. So to see light and life coming in, it was a celebration of who Jesus was, that absolute perfection. And then it goes on to say, I'll put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And this was a real stumbling block for the Jews, because the way the justice was going to come, they had a different hope of justice. 
he was going to bring a spiritual justice. He was going to do it as a result of what happens first, I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation. That's the order. And when God's spirit is on you, the way you do things looks completely different to the way the world does it. When you have God's Holy Spirit on you, you do things under his anointing, under his guidance. You listen and you take instructions from the Father. And that was what it meant. He had God's Holy Spirit on him, and he was going to bring about justice. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He didn't need to because his authority was different. And he wasn't there to start a revolution and get thousands of people to, to, to follow him in a shallow way. He wasn't about to start this um, military coup. He wasn't about to do something where he needed to stand in the streets and gather people and almost just have a false reality. Because when you follow a leader, and you probably have seen this in politics, that following is very fickle. It's as, it's as good as the person delivers, and then you go on to the next person. But he was going to do deep heart changes, and it was going to be significant. And so he wasn't going to shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He wasn't going to do it aggressively, although sometimes he, he showed a little bit of aggression. But that wasn't what his ministry was all about. In this beautiful verse, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He wasn't going to destroy people or demand blood. He wasn't going to break people. That wasn't what his ministry was all about. It was about a tender redemption. It was about bringing hope to mankind. It was about redeeming what was lost and bringing things back into order. When you think about the people he encountered that were in desperate need of redemption, the woman at the well, how did he treat her when everyone else would have just ostracized her? Zacchaeus, Judas, who betrayed him, he knew what was going to happen. He had the insight into that situation, yet he just treated him graciously to the end. Peter, who denied him, the rich young ruler who he talks to, and the rich young ruler says, what you're asking is almost too much, and, and Jesus' heart gets grieved and saddened because of this. The lepers, and just many more, you can see over and over again, he wasn't coming to just... Um, kind of like the Terminator, kind of knocking everything like a wrecking ball out his path. He was coming with beauty and with tenderness. He was going to come and treat people with respect. He wasn't going to come and hurt anyone because he had a genuine love and a genuine heart for people. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And if you think about that, justice and faithfulness don't don't seem to partner well together. If you think about, we've heard many cries for justice this year. We want to see justice, and how do you want to see it happen? You want to see people punished for what they've done. You want to see like things kind of leveled out. You want to see people being stopped in their tracks. You want to. You actually wouldn't mind if a few people got thrown in prison, um, got. I don't know, what they, what they deserved. Um, but that is not what he's going to do. The justice that he's going to bring is going to come as a result of faithfulness. Imagine what courts would look like if, if, um, if a verdict was, was given on the, on the grounds of faithfulness. It would look completely different. And this is what we see with Jesus, the justice he's bringing. And why? Because once again, it's spiritual justice. He will not falter or be discouraged Till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And what we see here is that Jesus had such a clear vision. He had such a clear mission. He knew what he was about and what he wasn't about. 
And what he does is he just goes about it with such clarity, with such beauty, with such confidence, because he's doing it under the authority of the Father. If you even see Jesus at 12 years old, when he's in the temple, and he's, he's speaking to religious leaders, and they come and they call him, his parents call him, and what is his response? I must be about my father's business. Already that serving has started. I must go about what he has called me to do at 12 years old. And if you think about Satan's temptation, everything that he wanted to do after Jesus was baptized was hijack that calling. He wanted to compromise what God had put him there to do. He tries to throw a span in the works, and he offers Jesus every other thing because he knows that if he can kind of just intercept it, that he can intercept the plan for salvation, the plan for justice to happen. And at the end, you know that his mission has been accomplished because he says, what are his final words on the cross? It is finished. It's paid in full. It is done. He knew what he was about. He knew what he was called to do, and he did his father's business. So if you look at those simple words, those four statements, those four verses, you look at it and you say, well, there's the mirror that we can look at. We're on the hill. We're seeing what's coming. How did people not recognize it? How did the Jewish nation not see it? They had access to these scriptures. When Jesus is even standing in front of them and saying, this is fulfilled in me today. This is me. And he's basically, the whole time, he's going, this is fulfilled in me. And so um, he, how could they have not seen it? And I always just think about kind of what would their reason be? And I'm sure there were many reasons, but I was just looking at the scriptures. And I think the first is just a wrong hope or expectation. He completely fulfilled God's expectations, but he didn't fulfill man's. And if you look at John 12, it says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still, not, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, like the Israelites who continually rejected him. So they can neither see their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. And so the offer was there, but they just weren't seeing it. Their eyes had been blinded. Their sin was standing in the way. The constant rebellion was standing in the way. And so their expectations became totally twisted because that's not what God had ever intended to do, to liberate them as a people. They wanted just um, physical blessings. They wanted phys to prosper physically when God was worried about their hearts. The other thing is that there probably was too much faith required. Sometimes when Jesus was putting forth a teaching, it was something huge that was actually just asking them to take too big a jump. Um, in, in, in John chapter 8, Jesus actually, he validates his own testimony about himself. For them, that's too big a deal. How can you tell us to trust you? You could be a lunatic. And, and so it's, it's for them too big a shift in their mental kind of thinking, in their way of thinking. And so for them, it's easier just to stay camped out in what they believe and not be pushed too much. And then the price was too high. If I can read these verses, it says, Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Isn't it amazing that even people that became convinced still chose to step back a bit because human praise was too important to them? And then also their hearts were hardened and their eyes 
their eyes were blind. And you see this over and over again where these religious people would be confronted, like slapped with the truth, and they would be challenged and their arguments would be totally dissolved. And they wouldn't walk away going, wow, I've just seen truth before me. They would walk away and just try and kind of concoct another plan to make Jesus stumble. They kept on getting confronted with the truth, but they walked away. Their eyes had actually been blind. Their hearts had been hardened. And why? Because they were religious. They thought they knew all the answers. Jesus actually says to Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. And how ironic is that? You are Israel's teacher, but you don't even understand it. Their eyes were completely blind. And then they weren't tuned into hearing God's voice, or if they did, they would often just choose to reject it. John 1 verse 9 says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And you look and you just go with all these things, these signs, with all the the miracles, with all the statements, with the way he treated people, the way he taught people, this different way. How could they have not have recognized him? And then I just think about the, the problem of our hearts, and we go, we're in exactly the same position. In fact, ours is a bit different, because the way I see it is that we're at this intersection, and we've got two mirrors. So we can see what has gone past. We know that the scriptures have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We know, because we have the privilege of reading Isaiah and reading the Gospels. We see it, but we, we live in the stage where, where we're kind of between that one, but the there's also another mirror that's showing us what's going to come. And we often tend to be blind to that and ignore that because sometimes that will require too much of a change. And just like they had this religious way of going about it and kind of making things okay in their head, I wonder how often we do that, where we just choose to kind of put our head in the ground and be an ostrich when when there's so many truths that God is putting forward, when there's so many truths that he wants us to know, but we still choose to live in our comfort. Because right now, if you think about it, we as a church might be more influenced by the West and by the American dream. And everything that we think, it requires for us to have a prosperous life. And, and instead of looking at God's word and going, this is what justice looks like in my life. This is what it actually means to prosper. And if we really had to be honest, because we all say, we'll pay lip service and we'll say, God is so important to us. He is first. He is real. He is. But think about your expectations. Just like the, Israel, the, the Jewish nation had this expectation of what the Messiah was going to come as. What have your expectations of God been this year? What have you really hoped that he would do and thought, if God loves me, he would do this? He would give me a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If God really loved me, he would give me more followers on social media. <laughs> Not really. I know you guys aren't that shallow. But um, if God really loved me, he would put that spouse in my life. He would put that person in. He would give me the perfect job. And all of a sudden, we start weighing God up by, once again, physical standards instead of the spiritual um, good that he is doing in our life and the truth that he is sowing in. And so we, we, we can't actually be that critical of, of people who didn't recognize him in his time because God is working and he's doing spiritual work and we're missing out because we've got this expectation of what the Messiah ought to be. 
And you know what I want to encourage you to do is, um, if you want to, I know some of you try to read the Bible in a year, why don't you next year start with Revelation? Because we can see how it ends. And you know these beautiful verses about him not breaking a bruised reed and not putting out the, the lamp and not snuffing it out. And those are beautiful. It speaks about his tenderness and his gentleness. However, there is more to it. There is a day that is coming when all of this will be too late. There will be a day where we will face God's judgment. And those are the things we don't like to talk about in our community, the judgment that is coming. Your friends who do not know God, who will be faced with God's judgment, people who are lost, who have heard the truth and chosen to reject it. We are living in these two realities where you being here you probably know God or have had the privilege of hearing the Bible or having a Bible in your home. So even if you haven't made the decision to follow God, you, you've been exposed to truth. You, you know what it says in the Word, but there are people that haven't. And we need to be aware that it, salvation isn't just about us and what God is doing in us. There's a world out there that needs to hear. And that is what God puts on our hearts. He, he gave us the work of Jesus to continue. He gave us these verses so that we could model our ministry on his work. We are now being told that we'll do even greater things. He's entrusted us as his servants. We've got this reality. And so I just want to challenge you as I close, just to, just over this time, we often, I'm sure a lot of you are taking leave and having a break, and, and just to spend some time really evaluating, are we any different? What is God doing that we're not seeing? What is, where is God working where I'm choosing to ignore it? What truths are actually ones that I'm choosing to ignore? You know, it's always an interesting thing, and I've done it in my own life too, where you know the Scriptures, you know what they say, but you choose to do things your own way. And I always want to, as I speak to young people, I'm like, but don't you know what God's Word says? And it's almost like there's this dichotomy between what God's Word says and how I should live. And we need to just kind of change the level. Like Trevor over there who, who just deals in the sound and turns things up and turns things down. If I sang in the microphone, he would turn it really down. <laughs> Thanks, Trevor. <laughs> I'm not singing yet. <laughs> there are voices in our life that we might need to turn down. There are things that are speaking to us that we might not realize just how, how strong an influence. For you guys, it is social media. That, that, that Instagram, the images you see, have actually probably numbed your mind to certain realities and desensitized you. And I promise you, I see it because I pray with some of you. I counsel some of you. It's not a criticism. There are things that numb my mind too. We're all human. But there are things we need to be real about the things that we are contending against. God has called us to be separate. He's called us to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. He's called us to make a strong stand. And this is just what I want to say is that as the end comes near, as we live in these end times, people are going to desert the faith. And namby-pamby faith isn't going to hack it in the world. God is calling you to be a firm believer who knows the Word of God, who stands on it, who operates under the power of the Holy Spirit, who believes in what Jesus has done. God has called you to be chosen, to be different, to continue the work of Jesus, as we say there. Unfortunately, and this sounds a bit harsh, but average doesn't hack it in God's kingdom. And, you know, too often we don't say those things. Too often we don't want to offend. And sadly, we are living in a time where you're actually going to have to start drawing a line in the sand and just going, that is the truth. I'm sorry, but that is the truth. 
Jesus didn't come as everyone expected him, and he was okay with that. In fact, he didn't have a lot of friends because of it. And that might happen to us too, that once we start drawing lines in the sand about what God has called us to do, people might not like it. Um, But life was never a popularity contest. This is a blink of an eye. And so as we, as we face this Christmas and celebrate the work that Jesus has done, let's take it seriously. Let's take it to heart. Let's ask what changes we need to make. Let's our blind eyes be open to who Jesus is and what he wants to do through us in this coming year too. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth and we can stand on it. We thank you for the work of Jesus, Lord, that we we so often are numb to because we've heard it over and over again. Yet, Lord, there's so many realities that haven't even sunk in. And, Lord, we don't want to be blind to what you're doing. We want to see where you're going and we want to follow you. So just work in our hearts, Lord. We pray for a freedom in the Holy Spirit to be able to be your mouthpiece, to be your servant, Lord. May we be humble before you. May we take our walk with you seriously. Lord, we don't want to be average for your kingdom. We want to be all out. And for all of us, it's going to require change. But, Lord, it's a change that's so worth it. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can remember the work of Jesus. Amen.